was that a serial killer is prowling the streets of Perth. After the disappearance of three women from the same Perth night spot, police are now certain they're looking for a methodical killer stalking young women. We certainly have fears that there is a serial killer at loose in Perth as well. Um, it's no point trying to step away from that obvious likelihood that there is a person of that type in the city of Perth. It's happened again. First it was Sarah Spears, then Jane Rimmer, now 27-year-old Kira Glennon has gone missing. From our inquiries with her family and friends, um, her disappearance is considered by us to be totally out of character. Of Irish ancestry, the young lawyer was last seen leaving the Continental Hotel in Claremont around midnight on Friday. She'd been celebrating St Patrick's Day with workmates. At the time of her disappearance, Kira Glennon was wearing a black skirt suit and a white faintly patterned blouse. Lisa Fairclough, 10 News. I will cross live to Perth now, and for the latest, we're joined by reporter Rex Hoare. Rex, good morning. Good morning, Jason. Three missing women now. Why is it assumed the third woman has met the same fate as the others? All the, all the circumstances are exactly the same as the first two. In fact, the location, everything uh, smacks of a serial killer now. Uh, the first two girls who disappeared, uh, police were convinced they did, were dealing with a serial killer. Uh, now, this third one really confirms that. And no bodies all have ever been found, though, Rex? One body was found last August of really? the second girl who disappeared. A girl called Jane Rimmer was found in a bush south of Perth. Um, but the other two girls haven't been found at all yet. There are rumours of things like bogus taxis roaming Perth. The feeling now could be that there could be actually a rogue taxi. But uh, there are unconfirmed reports this morning that this latest girl was seen getting into a taxi uh, and that was the last time she was seen, but the police won't confirm or, or deny that. The one thing we do know is, as tragic as it may seem, this new disappearance could be the breakthrough police are looking for. And have police set up a special task force or bolstered their investigation since the weekend? Yes, they've got uh, detectives uh, called in or seconded from other areas of the police force. It's a big task force. It's called the macro task force, which means the big picture. They're not only looking at the disappearances of these three women, there are other disappearances as well over the years and a lot of serious sex attacks in the same area where these girls disappeared. And is there likely to be a reward posted? I think, uh, like in all police forces, a reward is actually the last resort. This police task force is working well. It's been going a year. They've got thousands and thousands of leads, and it's very likely that the person responsible for this is someone they've already spoken to. Rex, thanks for joining us. That's Rex Hoare, our reporter in Perth. Hi guys, thanks for joining us today for the True Crime Sisters podcast. As always, I'm Harry and I'm here with Bill. Today we're talking about one of the first cases we've covered, the Claremont murders. We've actually decided we're going to um, re-record the episode with a bit more information and better sound quality. We just felt like when we first recorded it, we were so amateur that we kind of feel like we didn't do justice to the case or the victims. So we're obviously still amateurs, but we do know how to use our microphone now, which is a bit of a change. So if you have heard that episode before and you didn't want to hear it again, um, feel free to tune out. We won't take it offensively. If not, please tune in. Um, we do have five new Patreons this week, so we just wanted to um, give them a shout-out for supporting the podcast. So a big thank you to Millie, Shay, Lucky Jean, Linda and Bernadette. 
We've still got our two exclusive episodes on our Patreon page for anyone who's interested in hearing those. You can find us at www.patreon.com slash sisters. You can also show your support in other ways, so leaving us a review, so on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, and Harry runs all our social media pages, so um, feel free to have a chat to her on um, Instagram or Facebook. Are they or the Twitter. Only? Or Twitter, okay, cool. Um, so, yeah, she's across all that. So, as Harry said today, we're going to revisit the Claremont serial murders. Um, this case was huge in Australia in the late 90s and still holds the title for being the biggest and most expensive most expensive in Australian history. And as a lot of you probably know, it's recently um, come out that someone has been charged for these murders as well. So we'll definitely be following that closely and keep you guys posted as well if um, anything comes up during that trial. Claremont is a small affluent suburb in Perth, Western Australia. It is well known for being upmarket and home to many people in Perth's high society. Claremont is full of boutique style stores, trendy cafes, and wealthy people driving luxury cars. On Friday the 26th of January 1996, an 18-year-old woman, Sarah Spears, was getting ready to celebrate our national holiday, Australia Day. She was a country girl. Her father, Don, operated a successful shearing company, so hard work ran in the blood. Don had worked really hard to send his two girls, Sarah and Amanda, to a private school, Iona Presbyterian, to give them the best education that he could. Sarah was, by all accounts, a very responsible and family-orientated girl. She worked as the secretary of an engineering firm and shared her flat with her sister, Amanda. The sisters were extremely close. Sarah was very close to all of her family members, but in particular, Don. She was known as a real daddy's girl. She was also described as compassionate, affectionate and an intelligent girl who had a happy and simple upbringing. Australia Day 1996, Sarah decided to go out with her friends, as most young Australians do. They decided to head to an open-air concert to have a picnic. Later that afternoon, Sarah's sister Amanda picked her and her friends up so they could go for a night out. Amanda drove the group to the Ocean Beach Hotel in nearby Cottesloe, which is a beachside suburb of Perth. After they'd had a few drinks at the Ocean Beach Hotel, Amanda picked them up again and drove them to Club Bayview. Club Bayview was a night spot in Claremont and the perfect spot for Sarah and her friends to continue their night. Amanda had work early the next day so she went home to get some sleep. She had spent the entire week between work and university so she was exhausted. She was confident that Sarah would just take a taxi home. She was at the OBH Friday night and I went there. I called in to see her and Emma and to tell them that I'd drop them at club if they wanted to go. And then I went to a friend's, then I came back and got them and she was happy. Um, gave me a hug, kiss, goodbye, thanks for dropping us off. It's the last time I saw her. At approximately 2.06am, Sarah left the club and walked to a phone booth on the corner of Stirling Highway and Stirling Road. According to Google Maps, this walk would have taken her around four minutes. Once she was at the phone booth, she made a phone call for a taxi. While she was waiting for her taxi, three young men in a car drove past her and stopped at the intersection for a red light. They remember seeing her because they were checking her out. Like she was a young 18-year-old. Yeah. There were three young guys, so that makes sense that they would remember her. One of the men in the car noticed headlights from another car approaching the intersection behind them. 
Um, and when the intersection light went green, the men pulled their car through the intersection. But as they came through, they noticed that the car that was sort of approaching from behind didn't follow them through. The men questioned whether they should go back and check whether the girl they had been checking out was okay. When we say checking out, by the way, that's an Australian term for sort of thinking that they're attractive and just having a look. We now know that this girl was Sarah. After joking about how safe Claremont is, the men decided she would be fine and continued their journey home. When Sarah's taxi showed up at 2.09am, she was gone. That's three minutes, which is such a short amount of time. And initially they actually thought that it was definitely that three minutes that she went missing, but they later decided it could have actually been a longer period of time as that apparently is quite a dark area. So it is so possible... So the taxi driver may not have seen yeah, her? Yeah, or... it is possible that the taxi driver may not think, have seen her. Like, would she not have approached or, like, come out into the light if she had have seen the taxi, though? You would think so. This is just something that I... Just in my research, I came across that it's that initially it was that three minutes was crucial and then after they did sort of say it may not have been that three minutes so but it still might have been but that's just something I came across. Amanda became concerned when she still hadn't heard from Sarah on the Monday. She called Sarah's workplace to try and track her down but she hadn't shown up to work. This was extremely unusual for Sarah. At that point worry set in obviously as it would. Amanda called around Sarah's friends and found out that Sarah had left the club alone on Friday night. It was very out of character for Sarah to not contact Amanda. They were extremely close, as we said before, and they always kept in touch. Amanda decided to call her parents, Don and Carol Spears, to let them know that she couldn't find her sister. They were also very worried about this and decided to call the police. Within 48 hours of hearing about Sarah's disappearance, the major crime squad took over the investigation. At this stage, they were still unsure if Sarah had gone missing intentionally or if something more sinister had happened, but reportedly their gut feeling was that this was not a good situation. The family also worked really hard to convince the police that Sarah wouldn't just run away from home. Don Spears, Sarah's dad, received countless phone calls from psychics, clairvoyants and crazy people who wanted to involve themselves in Sarah's disappearance. And we're just going to clarify, we're not calling all psychics and clairvoyants crazy, but in this case... There was just a influx. A lot of strange people calling. Yeah, exactly. Just a lot of strange people. And they actually ended up doing more harm than good yeah, as absolutely. they didn't end up finding anything. And it just put a lot of stress on the Spears on the family. And that um, they felt that even if it was leads the police thought weren't valid to follow up. Like you can imagine as a parent that you would just want to follow up everything just in case it was that yeah. one thing that was like that missing pee. Yeah, so the calls were intrusive and um, none of them obviously led to anything, unfortunately. One phone call did stand out to Don, though. An unknown caller stated that Sarah was dead and that her body could be found at a nearby plantation. Um, He then hung up. So you can imagine how Don felt hearing this. He hoped that the caller would ring back and give him more information, but that call never came. So this is just... That's just not okay. Like... Mm -hmm. So obviously if people do think they have information and they are, like I'm not saying I do or don't believe in what these people do, but to just call up and just give that little bit of information and then just hang up. like They shouldn't be able to contact the parents directly, yeah. like call the police, call yeah. the hotline. It's, it's kind of disgusting. It is. And really disrespectful. And I'm sure half the people that call them think that their information is valid, but you just have to remember what kind of strain that family is yeah. already under. Yeah. Two months after Sarah's disappearance, Don made a public plea. He said... Please tell us where Sarah is. It is eight weeks since Sarah went missing and our lives have been absolute hell. Sarah was part of a close and loving family and showered us with her love. We miss her so much. 
The lack of information is worse than the worst possible news. We don't know what to do other than to hope someone comes forward and is willing to say what happened to her. At least one person knows and I urge that person if they have any feelings for the anxiety and suffering they have caused us and Sarah's friend to please ease some of it. This is the worst feeling any parent could have. Being absolutely helpless and not being able to do a single thing for our daughter. And that's just so sad. Yeah, it really is. Sarah wasn't the only girl to go missing in Claremont. Later that year, another beautiful young woman decided to enjoy a night out on the town. Jane Rimmer was 23 years old and was the youngest daughter of Jenny and Trevor Rimmer. Her family and friends described her as a quiet, fun-loving, responsible and caring girl. She had always aspired to work with children and had recently begun a job in childcare, which she was thriving in. On the 9th of June, 1996, Jane got together with a group of friends at the Ocean Beach Hotel in Cottesloe, which was the same place that Sarah Spears had started her night out. Jane had some dinner and drinks with her friends at the hotel before they decided they would head to the Continental Hotel, also known as the Conti. The girls had a dance and hung out for a bit before they later decided that they were going to head to Club Bayview, which was the other night spot Sarah Spears went to. Once they arrived at the front of the club, they realised how long the line was to get in. They weren't really keen on lining up, so they decided they were ready to go home instead. The group decided to take a taxi, but when they were getting ready to leave, they noticed Jane was hesitating to leave with them. Jane told her friends that she wasn't ready to go home yet. Her girlfriends reportedly did attempt to convince her to join them, but after a while they decided that Jane would probably be fine and headed off in the taxi. Jane was left behind in Claremont. The following day, the Rimmer family grew concerned after Jane didn't show up for their regular Sunday family lunch. They checked the flat to see whether she was there, but she wasn't. Jenny and Trevor decided it was time to call the police. The similarities between Jane's disappearance and Sarah's case led police to immediately link the two. The police quickly set up a task force called MACRO to investigate the cases. The officer in charge was Paul Ferguson. The task force quickly established that both girls were similar age, they were both attractive and had a similar look, and they both disappeared from the same area around the same time of night. Also, for both girls, the disappearance was out of character. Once Jane's disappearance was made public, the Rimmer family suffered the same fate that the Spears family did. They were bombarded with contact from clairvoyants and psychics, um, offering unsolicited advice, and it was... Sorry, advice. And it was the same... Same stories with the Spears yeah, family. Unfortunately. 55 days after Jane went missing, a family was driving through Wallard, which is about 40 kilometres south of Perth. The family had pulled over to the side of the road to pick some wildflowers when the mother noticed something lying nearby. It was the body of a female. She called out to her husband to get the police. He asked her to get in the car so they could go and get help, but she refused. She was staying with the girl. She wasn't going to let this girl be alone anymore, which I find so admirable because you'd be terrified. Anyone would be terrified to see that. And she stayed with her. Yeah. That's really good. So after examination, it was determined that the girl was Jane Rimmer. Upon the discovery of her body, the second suspected murder, the detectives decided to bring in criminal profiler Claude Minasini, who you may remember from episode five of our podcast about Paul Denyer. Minasini stated that the killer would be organised, controlled, planned and meticulous. It would be a male and he would take very good care of his vehicle. He would like driving and would be likely to have a job that involved driving. 
This killer would be able to hold down a job, but would be very anxious upon the discovery of the body and may possibly have unexplained absences from work. At the time, Minasini's profile drew a lot of criticism, but it seems now that someone has been charged, most of the things that he actually said were correct, uh, and obviously the same was for Paul Denyer, so this guy knows what he's talking about. Yeah. Kira Glennon was a bright young law student, fluent in Japanese and working in a legal office. At 27 years of age, she had just finished backpacking around the world and was settling into her new career. Friends and family describe her as fun, feisty and sporty. She had excelled at ballet at a young age. On March 14th, 1997, Kira was going out for drinks with some work colleagues after a long day in the office. They arrived at the Continental Hotel in Claremont at around 11pm. Kira only stayed with workmates for a couple of minutes. She then had a chat with another group of friends that she had seen before letting her workmates know that she was heading off for the night. Not long after 11pm, she left the Conti and began walking home. A group of men noticed a young woman, thought to be Kira, walking alone along the Stirling Highway in Claremont. One man yelled out at her that she shouldn't be hitchhiking in Claremont, only to be waved off by Kira, or the girl that's thought to be Kira. A few minutes later, the same men saw Kira talking to the occupants of a white station wagon a little further down the highway. The next time they glanced in that direction, Kira was gone. The next day, Kira's mum, Una, became concerned when she realised that she hadn't heard from her daughter. Una called one of Kira's friends and realised that the last time she was seen was when she was leaving the Continental Hotel. This was incredibly concerning to the Glennon family, who had heard about Sarah and Jane in the media. Like the other two girls, it was out of character for Kira to be out of contact with her parents. As Kira's disappearance went public, alarm bells began to spread throughout Perth about the potential serial killer. How had he grabbed another girl from right underneath their noses? Safety messages were sent out throughout Perth to warn women from the area to stay safe and not to take risks by being out and about alone at night. Kira's dad, Dennis, associated with some powerful people in Perth and they quickly put together a reward for $250,000 that would be given to anyone who was able to offer information leading to the return of Kira. After hearing nothing, Dennis made an emotional and heartbreaking public plea, begging for his daughter to be returned home safely. Only now do I even begin to understand uh, the, the terrible trauma that the parents of Jane and Sarah went through. On April 3rd, 19 days after Kira's disappearance, a young labourer was walking in the bush when he spotted the body of a young woman partially covered in branches and twigs. Terrified, the young man ran to the nearby house of his boss and called the police. When police arrived, there wasn't much doubt that the young woman was Kira. She was found off the isolated Pippendinny Road, 45 kilometres from Perth. After the Glennons were notified, they were able to put Kira to rest in a traditional Irish ceremony. The words of Dennis Glennon were haunting when he stated, God has come into our garden and picked the most beautiful rose. Following the discovery of Kira's body, the police were able to publicly confirm the existence of a serial killer operating in the Claremont area. In the police's opinion, the women were thought to have entered the killer's car by choice rather than being forced in. This inflamed speculation that a taxi driver or a person in a position of authority, for example a police officer, was involved in the abductions. The police stumbled across dead end after dead end, 
with no shortage of people making calls to Dobbin ex-lovers and creepy taxi drivers, with a huge 50,000 calls initially being made to Crime Stoppers, which is Australia's crime hotline. This began the biggest and most expensive investigation in Australia history. Police called for the person in the white station wagons who was seen speaking to Kira to come forward, but they never did. Information about the girls' bodies was carefully controlled for a couple of reasons. Firstly, so it wouldn't trigger copycat murders. And secondly, these facts were the key that may help catch the killer and prove the guilt or innocence of suspects. There was a huge amount of secrecy surrounding the case, even within the police force. Only members of the macro task force were to know information about the case and actually had to sign confidentiality agreements stating that under no circumstances would they repeat anything that they hear, heard about the case. After a while, the case was handed from easygoing and media-friendly policeman Paul Ferguson to supposedly arrogant and politically aware David Caporn. And just with the confidentiality agreement, um, I know that one officer during the process did actually breach that, so he actually was um, put off the job. So it was oh, not well, just put off the, this particular yeah. case. So, so it was taken seriously. very seriously, yeah. And even the young man who found um, the body of Kira was had to sign a confidentiality agreement as well. So it was taken very seriously so they could really find that killer and confirm that it was him when they did find, when they did charge someone eventually. David Caporn was most famous for wrongly arresting a man of murder, although this seems to have been overlooked at the time of the Claremont investigation. From early in his investigation, Caporn was sure that they had their man. The investigation zeroed in on a public servant, and we've decided not to say his name because obviously he's innocent and he was harassed enough, so we're not going to mention his name. We'll just call him the public servant. So this public servant declared his innocence from the start, Um, He was reported to spend many of his evenings cruising up and down the main streets of Claremont, looking for people who may need a ride home. Many thought that he was stalking the streets, and according to many other people, he was actually just lonely and without friends looking for company. And I have seen this actually mentioned in a few forums where people have personally gotten into his car during that time and remember that he was just kind of a lonely, no-mates kind of guy, just looking to, like, socialise. So the macro task force zeroed in on him and harassed him endlessly. They trailed him. They put surveillance on him frequently. There's a story that apparently embarrasses some of the police officers involved, and that's that the police actually installed secret recording devices in the roof above um, the public servant's desk in his workplace, and they didn't actually test, like, how heavy the devices were. And the devices were so heavy that they actually ended up collapsing the roof and falling onto the desk of the public servant, the suspect, and... You can just imagine how embarrassing it actually would have been for the suspect. Mm. Like you're at work and all your workmates have seen all this police recording equipment fall onto your desk as if it wasn't like embarrassing enough that you're being followed around by the police. So, And it sounded like he handled it quite well. Like he didn't, he went to every, every time they questioned him, he was there and he took the questioning quite well. And when he was doing um, anything that was sort of different to his normal route, he'd actually sometimes call the police and say, I'm going to be going here. So by all accounts, he cooperated as much as one can. He's yeah. being followed. And and he was obviously not the guy that was charged in the end. No. So the whole time he was basically innocent. And yeah. yeah. They also used a female police officer to act as a decoy, pretending to be a woman on her way home from a night out. So she got into the public servant's car after being offered a ride, and not surprisingly, she was obviously terrified at this point because she did think that he might have been um, someone who's done something wrong. Um, and she did find him to be weird. Yeah, which, of course, she's probably looking for those little quirks and 
um, things that might be a little bit off. And obviously at this time she didn't know that he wasn't the killer and he actually was the prime suspect. So, yeah, yeah so that's probably why. I'm pretty sure from memory she got out of the car as quickly as she could as well. Mm. There were a couple of other suspects in the case too. One was known as Judo Man because he was a black belt in judo and was an acquaintance of Jane Rimmer. And the other main suspects that were speculated about were two men that were actually living together at the time, with one living in a trailer on the other's property. One was a psychologist and the other was a taxi driver, and they were seen as a pair that had the right mix of qualities to pull off the abductions and murders together. The theory was that the taxi driver would pick up the women using his taxi as an easy way to get the women into the car, and that the other man would jump out of the back seat once the woman got into the car. So it's a very disturbing theory, but it wasn't the case. Yeah, and you kind of see in all the forums and stuff that people were kind of coming up with these crazy ideas in their head about, like, the worst-case scenario, what could have happened to the girls. Like, you can see that the longer it kind of drags on, the more people are sort of reaching for different possibilities and letting, like, the sort of nightmare develop in their Mm. head of what could have happened. Especially because it's in the media so much, but obviously the police are withholding a lot of information. Yeah, we have to fill in the blanks, basically. Yeah, so we understand that they're withholding it, but it does leave it open to speculation. Yeah. Um, there was actually another attack in Claremont a year before Sarah disappeared. So in 1995, a 17-year-old girl had been out in Claremont at Club Bayview and she was walking home alone through Rowe Park. Suddenly a man leapt out of his car and shoved a bag over her head before dragging her into the back of the car and abducting her. So it was approximately 2am. He had tied her hands up with telephone wire, which was important later and she was driven to a nearby cemetery, which is called Karakata Cemetery. When they got there, she was raped before the man drove away, taking her clothes with him and just leaving her there naked, which is horrible. Um, She was thankfully able to run to safety, and it was later learnt that this was actually also the work of the Claremont serial killer, so he was able to be linked by DNA. In 2008, an episode of Crime Investigation Australia was released about the Claremont murders, New information was revealed that had been withheld from police for all those years. The documentary revealed CCTV footage of Jane Rimmer talking to a man that the police dubbed Mystery Man. He was considered a person of interest because he was the only person police were unable to identify from CCTV footage from the club that night. The man appears to laugh and talk with Jane in the footage. Jane appears to be relaxed and seems to recognise him. 28 seconds later, the Mystery Man is no longer in the frame but Jane is still there. The camera pans away, and when it returns, she was gone, this being the last sighting of her alive. Police said that they didn't release the footage at the time of the murders because they didn't want the focus of the public to narrow in on the man, although I personally believe this was probably a mistake because I feel like people forget things over that length of time. Um, The case was reviewed 11 times over the years to make sure that the investigation was adequate, and every time the review was satisfied that the investigation was being conducted in a professional manner. But there was some criticism about the case. In 2015, WA Police Minister Michelle Roberts even went as far as to publicly state that she actually didn't have faith that the WA Police would solve the case. Also in 2015, another documentary on TV program Sunday Night was released in Australia about Claremont. In this documentary, it was revealed that a police officer on the prostitution squad named Con Bayans pulled over a man in a nearby suburb. The man's car boot was lined with blue plastic and contained wire ties, pliers and masking tape, which is obviously... Suspicious. Yeah. 
When Con went to the macro task force with the information, he was told not to worry about it and they had their man and they were referring to the public servant when they said that. Okay. So they just didn't even look into the man with the I wonder if plastic he, line boot. Do we know if the man was the man that they've now charged? Or? We don't, I don't know that. Yeah. But I just think that's, yeah. that's kind of scary. Yeah, that's not that good. someone would be driving around with that kind of stuff because what else would you have that stuff for? I don't know. Yeah. Finally, on the 22nd of December 2016, an arrest was made in the case of the Claremont murders. 48-year-old Bradley Robert Edwards, a Telstra technician living a normal suburban life, was charged with the willful murders of Jane Rimmer and Kira Glennon, as well as the 1995 rape of the 17-year-old girl. He was also charged with an indecent assault on an 18-year-old woman back in 1988. So just linking back to the rape in the cemetery, the girl was bound with telephone wire, which would have been easy for Edwards to access as a Telstra technician. For anyone that doesn't know, Telstra is a telecommunications company in Australia. Unfortunately, as Sarah's body has not been found, he couldn't be charged with her murder. Okay, good morning. I'm here to make an important announcement to the West Australian community. The announcement relates to the work of the Special Crime Squad, which in 2015 was allocated extra resources, including more detectives attached to the standalone investigation into a series of abductions and murders in Claremont in the 1990s. Codename Macro, this investigation <clears throat> was later expanded to include other serious crimes. The West Australia Police has made a significant breakthrough in this long-running case. Detectives from the Special Crime Squad have charged a 48-year-old Kudal man with the murders of Jane Rimmer and Kira Glennon and attacks on two other young women, a 17-year-old in Claremont in 1995 and an 18-year-old in Huntingdale in 1988. The man was arrested at his Kudal home yesterday and charged in the early hours of this morning. It will be alleged the man abducted 23-year-old Miss Rimmer in the early hours of June the 9th, 1996, after she'd had a night out with friends in Claremont. Her body was later discovered in Wellard on August the 3rd, 1996. Police will also allege he abducted 27-year-old Miss Glennon on Friday, March the 14th, 1997, after she too had been out in Claremont. Miss Glennon's body was discovered in bushland off Pippadini Road in Eglinton on April the 3rd, 1997. And he really does look like, like if you guys Google him, he just looks like your absolute typical Aussie yeah, dad. average Joe. Your bloke at the, he looks like the guy from the football, like yeah. your local football coach. But yeah. he's, he's like a big, strong, just normal looking guy. Like it's just scary. Yeah, I guess they, they can look pretty normal though, can't they? I know, but he just looks creepily normal yeah to get away with it for that long does not surprise me yeah. when you look like that his undoing came from a few mistakes on his part in 1988 when edwards was just 19 he crept into the huntingdale house of an 18 year old woman he went into her bedroom while she was sleeping and lay down on top of her what? which can you imagine waking That's... up to a man lying on top of you in your own bed i couldn't imagine. it's like every woman's nightmare she woke up and began screaming, which startled Edwards, and he quickly grabbed her kimono dressing gown and began to run from the house. Reportedly, he accidentally dropped the dressing gown on the way out, and it was later stored as evidence. Years later, police were able to test DNA left on the kimono dressing gown and were able to create a DNA profile, 
And that DNA profile matched the DNA samples that were found on Kira's body, as well as the woman that was raped at Karakata Cemetery. So actually really good police work. Really so as good much as people work. had a lot of criticism, they never stopped. They I mean, it was never a slow, it was kind of a slow, slow going, but yeah, but like DNA wasn't available the entire time. Yeah. And they did get there in the they end. They got there in the end. Well, I think we think it would be good if like they had like innocent people hadn't kind of been thrown under the bus on the way. I think that rubs me up a bit the wrong way. But yeah. having said that, like... That happens. And that happens. guy did see... There was a lot of little things that yeah. made him seem guilty. But at the same time, obviously that is bad. But they did catch their, their guy. Yeah, we hopefully. 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 According to media reports, it was other police matters that brought investigators to Bradley Edwards. But the DNA linked him to the murders and attacks on young women. It was also thought that car fibers on Jane Rimmer matched the Holden Commodore station wagon Edwards was using at the time of the murders. We also found Edwards' relationship patterns in relation to the murders interesting. He attacked a woman in 1988 and soon after was in a relationship until 1995. In the time he was in a relationship, there were no attacks that we knew of. Then, as he and his first wife divorced and he was forced to move home with his parents, the Karakata rape and Claremont murders take place. He then got into a new relationship in 1999, which may be why he didn't go on to re-offend as many serial murderers do. And this is just our own speculation, Absolutely. by the way. Like, there's nowhere that kind of confirms this, but just kind of going through the timeline and his relationship timeline, it does match up. And you do hear that professionals sometimes say serial killers stop when they're kind of preoccupied with marriage or kids or this or that. Sometimes. And, well, sometimes, and it lines up with his relationship in that way. Yeah, we think, but there also could have been numerous attacks within that period that we don't know we about. We don't know about, yeah. Yeah. So this is just totally speculation, but we just found it interesting that the time frame does, it seems like when he's in relationships, he's not yeah. doing this. So we're just giving you an idea that there, the main stuff happened in periods he wasn't in a relationship, which is just interesting. Well, it also would line up with him having kind of a controlled personality. So he's kind of able to control himself when he's in a relationship. But then you can imagine like when you go through a breakup, your life's kind of thrown into turmoil. And maybe he wasn't able to control himself as much when he was under that stress. He's such a creep. Mm. So at this stage, Edwards has not entered a plea and his case is adjourned till October 25. So we will have to update you when more information comes out later this month. There have been suggestions that the murders actually may not have been random, but we're just not going to know that until Edwards has his day in court. Until then, many victims of the crime still live on. And what we mean by that is the girls' families whose lives will never be the same again. There will never be a birthday or Christmas for them again that brings the same joy they experienced before their loved ones were taken from them. The friends of the girls, many who wish they had said or done something differently, will live with that guilt forever. And you can just imagine being Jane's, one of Jane's friends from that night. Like, just imagine, nothing wrong. We know that, but can you imagine, like... I don't... Yeah. There's nothing they probably could have said differently to get Jane to come with them but you'd, you'd always run it over in your mind I'd say yeah I hope they really don't because we've all been young and we've all wanted to we've all been the person who wants to stay out later and we've all been the person who's like come on it's time to leave and left a friend there yeah. we've all done well I don't know that everyone has sorry we haven't all we might not have all done it but it's common it's common and yeah. they have absolutely nothing to feel guilty about yeah and you also have to think of the people who um, discovered Jane and Kira in their resting places and they're going to be haunted by those yeah. images forever. And also, like as we said before, the suspects who were kind of hounded, who didn't end up 
um, doing anything wrong, we like have to kind of think of them as well because that would have obviously been quite hard. And of course, the three beautiful young women who were all on the cusp of adulthood, um, who without a doubt would have gone on to do great things. Thanks heaps for listening to us uh, this week on the True Crime Sisters podcast. We hope you'll join us again next week for a new episode um, that we obviously haven't covered before. Um, And until then, guys, please stay safe.